Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Game Audio Hour, a fortnightly podcast where we discuss all things game audio, from creative ideas to the latest techniques, project experiences to audio secrets. Here is where you'll find in-depth coverage and opinions related to game audio. I'm Vincent Diamante. I'm hanging out here in SoCal, uh, not broadcasting to you live. No, we're just talking amongst ourselves in Discord while I'm recording myself into Reaper for future editing. But over there on the other side of this Discord chat is Alex. How are you doing? Hello, Vince. I'm, uh, um, I guess I'm okay. I, so this morning I had my third uh, booster vaccination for the coronavirus. So if you're listening to this podcast in 10 years' time, remember that? That's right, the coronavirus. Let's hope that in 10 years' time it is not a hot topic like it is today. Uh, but yeah, as a result, I'm, uh, uh, I have a very sore left shoulder and uh, my brain is only half functional. So uh, you'll find me even more entertaining this evening compared to as usual. <laughs> Ooh, well, as long as it's the right half, the logical half or the creative half, right? No, that's right. That's right. Actually, I'm also recording into Reaper as we do this too. And uh, yeah, just before we started recording there, we were we uh, started chatting a little bit about Reaper and we thought, well, we probably should just get the recording going so we can actually have this uh, <laughs> this part of our, our show tonight. But good old Reaper, you know, um, we won't, won't stretch this out too long because we often talk about DAWs and uh, obviously, that's not a topic that's necessarily going to be interesting for everybody. Well, hold on. Um, you say that. We often talk about it. It's been a <laughs> while since since we were in that state of often talking about DAWs. I, I don't think we've talked about DAWs for a while. Uh, yeah, let, let's try to keep it to a, a minimum, though. Okay, yeah. So at the moment, we are anticipating the upcoming release of Cubase 12, and uh, Steinberg is going to be dropping some bombs with this one, and the the main one, I think, is their licensing system is going to change, so you no longer have the the um, infamous Steinberg dongle. It is, I think, uh, one of the only... Actually, I'm not sure about Avid Pro Tools, but I think it's one of the only mainstream DAWs that actually requires you to have a, a USB thumb key plugged into any computer that you want to use it on, which is fantastic for anti-piracy. Not so fantastic for pretty much everybody these days because hey come on who has usb dongles when there are so many good and relatively reliable options for anti-piracy and copy protection but anyway mm -hmm. uh they they have a new licensing system which is going to go into action in cubase 12 as well as uh dropping vst2 support whoa so i didn't even realize that wow really no vst2s you didn't know. Yeah. I, I did not hear about S this wow yeah so Finally, um, although actually, to be fair, I believe, and I would need to check this, but I'm not going to, so somebody else is going to have to, but I think it might be only on Mac platforms are they going to support AU and VST3, but they're dropping VST2 support. Maybe it's across the board for Windows as well. I'm not sure. I guess it would make sense that it's across the board because, you know, that's a, a rather rather big move, but... Um, yeah, wow. basically, uh, the time has come. It's, mm. uh, yeah, Steinberg, in, for those who don't know, Steinberg are actually, uh, they own the VST format, don't they? Yeah, they, they were the, the guys that started this whole thing off. I mean, back in the day, in the, wow, in the early 2000s, there were a couple of different 
formats that were out there for plugins and instruments. Uh, DirectX was actually a major format back when I was starting out on this thing. And I was very aware of that because I was on the Cakewalk Sonar bandwagon. Um, they right. actually initially hitched up their cart to DX and DXI. So I used those, all those plugins that I would install. They gave you the option. Do you want to install the VST, the, the DX, or RTAS if you're into Pro Tools? Right. Um, yeah. And it's been VST2 forever, for literally decades. Uh, that was the eventual winner out of the 2000s. Uh, no one cares about DirectX plugins these days. Um, right. But wow, I'm actually really surprised about this. I'm reading a little bit right now. It does say that VST2 plugins will run in Cubase 12 if you are running in Rosetta mode on right. your okay. Apple Macs. But if you're running native, then no VST2s. Wow. Right. Yeah, so for, I don't actually know the details, but for whatever reason, um, quite a number of developers have been reluctant or slow to port their work to VST3. It may be issues with the way that Steinberg has implemented VST3, making it rather complicated to do that. I know that VST3 has a bunch, bunch of um, extra functionality. Um, it, it seems to be fundamentally quite different the way that they function. I don't know the details of that, um, uh, but certainly VST3 will actually allow a VST plugin to receive input uh, via a sidechain, which you cannot do with VST2 as far, as far as I'm aware. Maybe you can. There was one, hmm. maybe it's not that, there was one fundamental um, big functional difference between the two. Uh, in any case, um, what they said, what Steinberg said in their in their blog post about this was, you know, if you have any legacy VST2 plugins where the developer hasn't yet ported to VST3, it's time to hurry them along because it has been X amount of years since VST3 has been out there. Um, but there, yeah, I do believe there's some rather complicated and maybe some commercial or political reasons why uh, some plugin developers choose not to uh, port to VST3. So I'm not exactly sure. Anyway, wow. Um, at the risk of this being a conversation about Cubase, which it is not, uh, because Cubase 12 is coming, I started to sort of, you know, you know how it's like that that yearly. Basically, when you're in between a project in your company and your mind starts wandering off, getting occupied by things that ultimately aren't really very important, <laughs> like <laughs> which, which DAW you use. Um, uh, yes, I, I, uh, started looking at, you know, um, other options because obviously if I'm going to have to buy Cubase 12, I guess I don't have to buy Cubase 12, but you know, I, I would like to buy Cubase 12 cause I use Cubase basically as my main music DAW next to Renoise. Um, it, if I'm going to spend that money, are there other options that might be better for me? So hmm. I was looking at, at, uh, Bitweek. And Bitwig is nice, you know, it's got a lot of, um, uh, of that sort of German DAW heritage you can feel in there. Um, and a lot of it is it's very well thought out and it's very, obviously has a lot of excellent performance functionality as well as um, uh, like, what would you call it? Modular synthesis and modular, modular functionality in that you can, inside Bitwig, you can basically create your own engines synthesis engines and and uh, chaining together different VSTs and 
in a whole kind of module environment, uh, as well as a lot of um, excellent things for algorithmic music. For example, you know, modulating pitch by formula and by, you know, all kinds of different fancy things like that. So it looks very impressive. Yeah. Uh, It's also very expensive, as you would expect, for a software of that caliber. Wait a minute. Um, How expensive is it? Well, uh, at the time that we're recording this, and it's not on sale, uh, I think it is 399 euros. So, yeah, roughly 399 US dollars. Wow. This is one of those things where my memory is playing tricks on me. I still remember Bitwig as being that young up-and-comer back in the mid-2010s, providing this sort of cool alternative to for people that were interested in, say, the Ableton Live way of working with things, but they wanted something even more refined or like a, this still a rather fresh philosophy on how to actually make stuff. And it wasn't that expensive back then, but okay, now it's playing uh, up in that tier with the big boys now. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, Bitwig has a really interesting um, subscription style model that is not really a subscription model. Um, that's actually quite fair and quite logical. So when you buy Bitwig, you spend that much money and you get one year of free updates. But their idea is that you own the software and you can update it for free for one year. And then when that one year is over, you have a choice. You can either leave it and not update it, uh, or you can take like an an upgrade price to get another year worth um, worth of upgrades on top of that. The idea is that unlike a, a traditional subscription model um, where if you stop paying the money, you cannot use the software anymore. In this case, if you stop paying the money, you can continue to use it perpetually, I guess, you know, for as long as, as it uh, works for the operating system that you're using. Right. Uh, and then you can choose to sort of jump back into the subscription anytime that you want to. So it's quite logical and it's quite fair, I think, because the idea is that if this version of Bitwig has all of the features that you need and you and the next version comes out after a year and you see, well, actually, you know, I don't see any new functionality there that I actually really need right now. You can actually hold off from buying that extra year of upgrade until something comes along that you think, oh, actually, this is really useful. I want that. And then you can jump back into another 12 months of, of free upgrades. So it's quite logical, really, and it's, it's quite sensible, I guess, as a a hybrid model for um, subscription pricing. Huh. Yeah, that doesn't sound bad. Honestly, it reminds me a bit of how I was back when I was on Cakewalk Sonar because uh, towards the end there, I say the end, but Cakewalk is still going on just under new ownership now. But back when I was still mm. actively using Sonar, they had a similar thing going on where, yeah, you basically bought a year worth of updates and even if you weren't in that year, uh, the the software still worked perfectly fine. Uh, I was actually very happy to pay for that year of updates because they established themselves with a reputation of making really cool updates. Some of it was functionality. Some of it was features. Uh, I actually really liked Sonar back in the mid-2010s. Oh, my God. I can't believe it's that long ago. Um <laughs> But that, yeah, that, that really wasn't a bad way to go about it. So, hey, that's cool that these guys do it as well. Bitwig. Yeah. So anyway, whenever you're considering a uh, DAW purchase, obviously, obviously, 
the elephant in the room is good old Reaper because, <laughs> you know, why, in, in a sense, the feeling is like, logically speaking, only from pure logic, why would anybody use any other DAW? Because Reaper is affordably priced, very affordably priced if you are like a freelancer or somebody with an income under a, a certain threshold. It's something like $60 or something like that. Um, that $60 license will last you a really long time. And it's updated very, very frequently, sometimes too frequently. Because, <laughs> like, you know, you, you go to, you go to st- jump into a project and it's like, oh, another update. It's only like been a few weeks since the last one. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, it is absolutely industry strength, rocks, rock steady, super stable. Like, I don't think I can recall Reaper itself having crashed ever, I don't think. Um, the only other DAW that comes close to that in terms of stability is actually Renoise, which in the, I don't know, 15 years that I've been using it has crashed twice. And that was because of a dodgy plugin that I had going. Uh, so uh, anyway, you know, and the CPU efficiency is amazing. The The functionality is top tier, you know, it can absolutely do anything, any kind of workflow that you have in mind. I would like to be able to do it this way. You can set it up in Reaper without too much effort. Uh, you can make it look whatever you want it to look like. Um, the, I, I, the media browser, browser is fantastic. I love hearing all this adulation from you who does not really use Reaper for music. <laughs> no. So I'm getting to that. Yeah. So oh. basically, you know, that there's logically speaking, there is no reason not to use it. It's it's one of the most CPU efficient DAWs out there. It's basically like Linux, which means that if once you understand it, you can basically do anything with it and anything you need to do, whether it be sound effects design or music or you know uh, recording or multi-track recording or tracking or mastering, all of it is is very easy. It's great. Why would anybody use anything else? Yeah. It, it, I actually <laughs> like the Linux uh, comment because it does – I never really thought about that. But, you know, when we talk about uh, Reaper, uh, there's so much made of, oh, you could just, you know, use this bit of JavaScript in order to make this thing happen and uh, grabbing stuff from the from the Reaper repository and just downloading it and then immediately you get some new functionality that you hadn't had before. It's not that far off from Linux where you can, you know, just grab something from the repo or like find something online and then make yourself a little bash script in order to make something happen. Exactly. So here's my problem. (laughs) And here's the reason why I just, I just cannot, you know, I just can't seem to get into using Reaper for music. I do use it for sound effects design very heavily. So it's my main DAW for doing sound effects, but when it comes to music, if I'm not using Renoise, because I'm, as you know, I'm a I'm a tracker head at heart, so that's where that's where I go first. And if I'm doing something that like, okay, this is clearly better for a horizontal linear DAW as opposed to a pattern-based DAW like Renoise, um, uh, I go to Cubase. Yeah. Why don't I go to Re- Renoise? Uh, sorry, to Reaper. It's the Linux analogy is very very close. Let's say. For example, let's say I'm I'm in Linux and I think um, I would really like to have a you know a desktop wallpaper 
that randomly changes every 10 seconds, right? For example. Mm -hmm. So yeah. in, in Linux, okay, probably nowadays in Linux, that's actually a built baked in built-in functionality. So maybe this isn't a good example, but let's, let's pretend that the uh, distribution of Linux that you're using does not have that functionality by default. So as you just said, if you have a certain degree of a proficiency with how your how Linux is set up, then you can absolutely go and find a way to do that yourself. You can either go and you know find a a, a repo with with some that somebody's prepared. You you install it through a package manager or something. It doesn't work. You're not sure why. You go to the the uh, what is it the .rc file yep. and check the settings, and you know. Okay, you got to change that, and okay, this doesn't work for some reason. So you do a bit more research, then you understand. Oh, okay, I see. It doesn't work because of this and this and that. So you just adjust some scripts and and dot files here and there, and and then you've got it work. You got it working, and you feel a great sense of accomplishment because a you got it working, b you learnt something about Linux and your setup, and c you feel great because hey. This thing that I use, I made it do something that I wanted that, you know, is a little bit out of the ordinary. That's cool. Mm -hmm. Now, this is exactly the same problem that I have with Reaper. So, <laughs> yeah. for example, I have not invested the time to make for myself the perfect template. That's because I mainly use Reaper for sound effects. So what I want when I open Reaper is I just want a blank slate, no tracks, maybe some stuff on that, like my, um, my favorite limiter on the master bus or like a, a, um, a spectrum analyzer on the master bus or something like that. That's all I want. So my, my main sort of default template is very bare bones. It has pretty much nothing in it. Mm -hmm. So let's say, for example, okay, I want to, I want to record some sounds out of my Roland D D110. I want to, okay. I want to do this quickly. Like I have an idea and I want to get some sounds out of my Roland D110 as fast as I can. Unless I'm used to doing that routine often, it sort of always takes time in Reaper for me. So, okay, I've got to open a new track, right? There's a new track. Um, now, how do I, I guess it's rear insert. Okay, so put in rear insert. Oh, but hold on. Mm -hmm. Now it's not receiving MIDI from my controller to send out to the D110. Okay, so I've got to right click there and um, is that it? No, that's not it. Okay, now it's working, but for some reason there's like half a second of latency and I don't know why. Okay, why would that be? Quick Google. Oh, okay, I have to press this ping button and then I have to press it twice or something and then I have to wait 10 seconds. Uh, okay, do that. Uh, okay, now it's working. Okay, I got it working. Right. Now it's recording MIDI. Okay, so I wanted to record audio, so I need a new track and I need to put the output from the insert into that new track and then arm that. Uh, I think that's right. Okay, now it's not recording anything. Uh, now why what? Okay, exactly, <laughs> you see my point. Yeah. So yeah. at the end of all of this, I, I after sort of 10 minutes of doing this, I have achieved the goal. I have recorded something out of my D110. However, I'm also totally exhausted I've lost the sort of the, the, the flow and the, the speed of the inspiration that I had to do this in the first place. Um, and it, it just sort of, yeah, if I did this all the time, I would probably make a template that has all of my hardware since already set up. So I can just go there, click on the track, start playing and it all works. But because I don't come, my workflow is sort of different for everything that I do, which is the reason why I don't yeah. usually use that many templates. So I have to remember how to do it. Like Linux, I can do it 
in Reaper. And there is a sense of satisfaction in learning a bit about how Reaper works and, and having conquered this challenge. But meanwhile, in Cubase, in Cubase, add instrument and then yeah. they're together, they're together with all of my VST instruments underneath all the Yuhi synths and all of that. There it is, Roland D110. Add that, it's all set up. Click, start playing, press record, there's my audio, all done. And so, it, yes, that's because part of having Cubase talk to a hardware synthesizer means that you have to set all of that up from the outset because otherwise it won't talk to a hardware synthesizer. So mm -hmm. all of that, that kind of work that I did in Reaper is sort of front-loaded. And you're probably thinking, well, why doesn't he just save like a, a track preset or something in, in Reaper so that he can just pull that up? That would be the equivalent of what I've done in, in Cubase. Yes, true. <laughs> maybe you're right. So maybe maybe it should be, maybe the fault is mine. But for some reason, everything that I do when I come to Reaper, because my needs are always so different, it always takes that little extra time to get it going for me compared to like Cubase. This is my music DAW, do it in there. Reaper, this is my sound effects DAW, do it here, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. Woo. <laughs> I, I mean, I get, I get it. I totally get it. And I think, you know, there, there is a certain irony there or, yeah, you know, Reaper is so great because it's so powerful and it's so cheap, but I really hesitate to recommend it to people who don't know what they're doing right off the bat, who are the people right. that would most benefit from having something that's a really good, affordable entry point into this whole space of powerful audio and music tools. Uh, there's so right. much that you just need to do on your own. But, um, I mean, I'm kind of a, a really good... Uh, example of uh, of a person for whom Reaper is just great. You know, I've been working with different tools over the last few decades. I've, I have literally decades of experience in Cakewalk Sonar. I've, I did a little bit in Cubase, a little bit in Samplitude. Obviously, I learned stuff like Pro Tools while I was in college. So I know a whole lot about how all these things work, not just how to make things happen, but also what they do beneath the surface in order to execute because the way that, you know, interfacing with your D110, for example, you know, Cubase does it in a different way. Uh, Cakewalk does it in a different way, but they do have similar ways of making that type of thing very accessible. In Cakewalk, it's mm. these instrument definition files. I can't remember what it is for Cubase, but it has its own way of doing that, which makes it much simpler than having to constantly set up this new interface within your project for uh, for interacting with the device. But Cubase does it, Digital Performer does it, Logic does it, Reaper doesn't. <laughs> so you have to do all these separate things. But I've had all this experience in the last 20 years that has given me the information to uh, actually execute on how do I interface with my hardware the way that I want to. Mm. Uh, and it's great for me, but for mm. someone who either is not sure how they're going to do it, they just want it to work, uh, it can be really troublesome. And even for you, you know, you're a pretty experienced guy, but still you have other pressing issues. You want it to be able to work quickly and easily and 
not get out of your musical zone in order to yeah. make these things happen. So yeah, I totally yeah. get it. Yeah, I think you hit it on the nail head. Hit it on the nail head. Hit it on the head of the no. What is the expression? Hit it on the head of. <laughs> no, the, hit yeah. it on the nail. Uh, hit, hit it. Yeah, hit the nail on the head. Yes, hit the nail right. That's in it. Yeah. That's it. Hit the nail on the head. Well, yeah. When you said established workflow, that's the thing. If you know how you want to work, or you are one of the lucky ones who happens to be doing something that requires the same workflow every time then Reaper is absolutely amazing. And I know that because the, the very first time I got to use Reaper was, uh, I think, 10 or nine years ago. Mm. And um, we were doing this project with, it had, it was like eight voice, eight voice actors, uh, each recording something like 200 lines each. So I basically had these eight long, you know, 40 minute recordings of the voice talent doing 200 lines in one long file and I had to chop them up into individual samples really fast because there were so many of them. <laughs> and the first thing I thought was like, oh my God, this is going to take ages. How am I going to do this? I have to chop it out and then like save that section and then chop the next one and save that section. And this is going to be ridiculous. And then I thought, oh, maybe, I'd, I should, maybe I'd heard good things from some game audio buddies about Reaper. So I just, I'll, I guess I'll try Reaper. And it was, I, I got it done in like, uh, what was it? It's like basically six hours or so, mm. uh, just because it was a, a workflow that I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I had this, I wanted to be able to split at the cursor point. So click to place the cursor, split there, then add like, you know, an arbitrary amount of space in between each one of these little stems. And then um, uh, like select everything, create a region for all of them, export that with a batch exporter with automatically generated file names. It was brilliant. It was amazing. You know, just so fast. Yeah. And then I realized it is so fast because in this case, I have a very clear picture in my mind. I need to do specifically this. And that's where Reaper is just better than anything. Because if you have that in your mind, you need to do specifically this, then you can set it up so that it, it's very, very efficient. So I guess all of this is to say that yeah, I, I need to just say, okay, right, for the next two hours, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to make the music template <laughs> for for Reaper that is going to basically allow me to just jump in, click on a track, start playing my D110, okay, there's my audio, um, pop that into a sampler, off we go, you know. Um, I mean, you could, so but you, know, you don't necessarily have to. You know, sometimes it's okay to have a, a separation of church and state, as it were. Uh, I mean, for years, I actually did that. I had Cakewalk Sonar, but yeah, like you, I started using Reaper for sound and voice work about 10 years right. ago, back in the Reaper three, four days. Right. And it was brilliant. I couldn't wrap my head around it for music work, but mm. for sound work, I was very happy to just keep on doing stuff in there, whether it be big projects or small projects. It was really, really fast. But I had also mm. built up 10 years of experience working in sonar. So I'm going to stick with that for all my music work. Right. And then uh, it wasn't until much, much later that I decided, wow, I've built up all this experience with Reaper. Let's see how I am using it for music now. Like mm. literally seven years after I touched Reaper as a sound platform, that's when I decided to actually use it as a music making platform. 
and right. it and I took to it really well. It was great, but you know, seven years of experience too. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, no, maybe you're right. Maybe um yeah, I don't know. Cubase is is really, really good though. And I've, there are I know if if uh, our good friend and uh our previous host here on the game audio hour, Chase is listening to this, he'll be cheering from the from the get from the gallery, I'm sure. But the Cubase is really, really good. And it's it's just a fantastic music platform, basically. You know, it it has everything that you need and uh and more. And uh everything is for a one of these big behemoth legacy DAWs, you know, along with like uh Logic and Pro Tools and you know, this sort of big elder statesman of DAWs and Cubase literally is the elder statements of elder statesman of DAWs because it was the first to have this linear uh horizontally scrolling visual representation of music data right it's surprisingly refined and surprisingly streamlined and quick and easy to use which is more than you can say for a lot of other you know elder statesman legacy pieces of uh old software but anyway mm-hmm. yes i think you're right it's uh I, I just have to have the patience to sit down and set it up for for those kinds of musical tasks that i'm usually in a hurry and and then just see how we go, I suppose. Just to finish off, sorry, okay. one last thing. One thing that is so good, so good about Reaper is how small the install is and how quickly it boots up. That is amazing, you know, especially when you like to look, uh, work quickly like I do. It's like 18 megabyte or something like that as the install, which is, <laughs> you send emails bigger than that these days. Yeah. And uh, it boots up in a matter of like, two seconds maybe so you just quick straight into it blank project go i really love that so maybe what i really need is just to spend that time to spend two or three hours to set everything up perfectly so that i can just click on the reaper icon bang it's up there two seconds great click on the track there's my d110 let's go that would that sounds fantastic kind of a tangent there you were talking about the size of reaper i feel like sizes are an interesting thing to look at on one of these Discord channels that I'm on, there was a person that was actually really interested in getting a new audio interface. Mm. And, you know, there's always things like, oh, yeah, you should get this Focusrite uh, or, you know, don't get this Behringer or, you know, something like that. Everyone has their own recommendations. It's like, okay, uh, obviously it's nice to have a recommendation that's based on experience, but I wonder if there's some other more objective measures that people can use when it comes to judging whether something is worth your time and hard-earned money, especially if you're Mm. spending, you know, a couple hundred bucks on something as your first pro audio interface where you could get good MIDI in and out, you know, good quality drivers, uh, a good microphone preamp, blah, blah, blah. Um, And during the course of that conversation, I came to realize that driver size is actually a really interesting thing to look at. Um, Mm. Like how big are the drivers and how much does it support? Because I think that that's actually a really useful indicator of just how much ongoing support you'll actually get for one of these pieces of gear. You know, in the audio interface world, there are companies that put out things that are ostensibly for, you know, budding musicians and, uh, professional audio artists, and then they get out of the game and they don't support it anymore. Right, Some of them right. have only been at it for a couple years. Some of it have been around for a while but have gone out of the game now because of 
business, what their business being acquired, right? You know, M Audio. You know, M Audio was such a big player in the audio interface world from entry level to to the pros. But mm. that was 20 years ago when they started, or more than 20 years ago. And now they're, you know, they don't really have ongoing support. So you wouldn't recommend mm. that someone grab something like that. But there are also all these other players that are in the game. I thought it was really interesting to see how big some of these drivers are. Some of them are mm. huge packages where you have to download something that's 50 megabytes or 100 megabytes in order to get right. drivers for an audio interface. And then I looked at some of the things that I actually personally recommend. Um, things right. like RME, for example. RME, yeah. really expensive, very high quality, huge reputation. But also, their drivers are under 10 megabytes. And oh, right. they're Interesting. And they're constantly supported. You can look back mm. at their version history and see that they've that they use the same under 10 megabyte driver package to support audio interfaces that go back to the early 2000s. So, wow. So that's cool. Um, but of course, Army is not the only one where you can have that same objective measure. You mentioned Cubase. Mm. I'm going to go ahead and say Steinberg audio interfaces are actually really excellent by that same measure. All right. Yeah, their driver packages are really small. Inside of the driver package is support for audio interfaces all the way up to their most recent stuff. They're like UR44C and whatnot, uh, which are right. nice interfaces, not insanely expensive, very much for the person that's just getting into this. They want to get a nice interface with nice audio quality and nice drivers for around 200 bucks. That same driver package actually has support for all the stuff going back to the mid 2000s that, you know, Steinberg, uh, CI2 and all those really cheap audio interfaces that they were just starting out with back then. Mm. So there's like a real solid trackable lineage of the hardware mm. and software there in that nice, tight, small package. Um, so wow. I, I thought that was that's really a, interesting to look at. That's really cool to know, actually, because if you ask me, like, what's a good audio interface, like top quality, I would say RME. I, I use Focusrite, but one of the things that I um, am not terribly thrilled about is the fact that the driver hasn't been updated in like, I don't know, six or seven years. <laughs> <laughs> which sort of make, makes me wonder, you know, I, it works. Like, it's not like I've had problems, uh, but it, it also makes me kind of wonder, like, ooh, you know, is, is gee, I'm, I'm really out of date with this device. You feel like you're, you're running a, an old legacy device that's just hanging on by its last legs um, by the fact that the driver is so out of date, but there's nothing newer, like that they just don't update it. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it works great and so there's nothing to fix, but somehow... Yeah, but when when it when it comes to Steinberg, that's really interesting. I've always been aware of the existence of their interfaces, and I've always sort of assumed that you know because Steinberg is a a massive company, they make a whole bunch of um, excellent software products. I've always sort of assumed somehow that their hardware interfaces are kind of like you know, well, we have the money for it, so we may as well just you know drop a hardware interface here as well, and you know make a little little bit of extra extra revenue uh people need hardware as well there you go off there's your hardware interface okay now back to the software yeah but, <laughs> but it's it's good to hear yeah uh, i mean i don't actually use a steinberg audio interface but uh 
it's not just Steinberg. Actually, those drivers are shared between the Steinberg brand as well as the Yamaha branded stuff. So the Yamaha AG06, AG03 mixers, uh, which are actually Mm. really nice mixers. So for, and that's actually one of those things that I like to recommend to people who are not necessarily music and sound effects people, but actually for streamers and people that just want to record Mm. themselves singing along on on stuff. Uh, You know, if you're doing that sort of streaming on Twitch, it's actually a really good device. And it actually mm. shares that same uh, driver bundle there. And it's a really good driver. It's simple. It mm. works. It's effective. And that hardware that's in those Yamaha mixers is actually very similar to the stuff in the Steinberg mixers. Uh, some of the mic pre's mm. are actually the exact same design, and they're very good. Yeah. I mean, theoretic- theoretically, Steinberg, because they have access to all of that Yamaha technology, and obviously Yamaha has a long pedigree in um in uh you know preamps and or in the audio world some of their old analog mixes are actually quite expensive now on reverb oh yeah yeah uh the old because people love to drive them and uh um yeah i guess it makes perfect logical sense that steinberg's interfaces would be of decent quality too yeah so just you know i don't want to poo-poo anyone else but this is a good way to look at who who are the good ones out there rme is definitely a good one they're really expensive Steinberg and Yamaha, mm. they're not that expensive. They're very affordable. Those Yamaha mixers, yeah. they're about 100 to 200 bucks brand new. And they're high quality. Mm. And the driver that's used to, to work in Windows and Mac, it is a, actually a, it's a simple driver, but it's a robust driver that just works. So I would highly recommend that one as well. Did you, um, when you were doing that research, did you look into Roland's drivers and Roland's interfaces? Or... Um, Eddie Roll? You know, it's been a while there. Like, I remember back in the day, Roland and Cakewalk were kind of in cahoots in the early 2000s. So I was very aware of the product line at that time. But now, um, I actually didn't look too much at what's currently supported. I know that they still sell some of their, uh, they still sell some stuff out there. But, um, you know, that whole lineup of interfaces that they provide is not as expansive as it used to be so i haven't really been looking at that right yeah i, I my main experience was before i got this focus right i had a uh uh eddie roll uh firewire interface mm. for my old mac back when firewire was a thing and i have to say the preamps were not that great but the the interface itself had a hardware limiter like there was a switch on the back that said limit and you could switch it on and that would basically protect from overshoots on the on the preamps, right? Oh, nice. I found that that hardware limiter, when you when you when you drive something into the li- into that limiter, it had the coolest sound. Oh, that's awesome! <laughs> so so if actually overload the preamp and it's hitting that limiter, it it had this really cool sound to it. Um, so that's why I've always sort of wondered, yeah, maybe maybe I should, you know, <laughs> the, if when this focus right finally kicks the bucket and and RME. You know, you've always you've always recommended RME and held them in very high regard. But when I look at their price, it's just like, well, yeah, I understand that I'm getting what I'm paying for here, but that's an expensive price. Yeah. Um, the meanwhile, the the Roland Quad Capture and Octa Capture, I think it's called the the those ones are, are obviously much cheaper. So I was looking at them, thinking, I wonder if that has the same limiter circuit that that old uh, Firewire interface had, because it'll be cool to be able to get that sound again. Oh man, that's funny. You know those. 
the the analog designs in those things is it's really interesting. Yeah, back in that era, 10, 15 years ago, preamps, especially cheap preamps, were not what they are today. Nowadays, there's some right. really good cheap preamp designs, but back in the right. 2000s, it felt like it was very hit or miss. But there were also right. some really good designs happening elsewhere in that analog circuitry. Right. So, okay, I can totally imagine what you're talking about with hitting that limiter really hard and getting a cool sound. Yeah, I remember when I first got my Roland D110. So I, I have um, a JV1080, a D110, an MKS50, and a um, TX81Z. Mm. Uh, as These are my four rack mounts that are sitting next to me here. When I first got the D110, I was really looking forward to it because I'd, I'd heard of it as being a really crusty kind of you know, um, uh, basically a poor man's D50. Hmm, yeah. So it had that same kind of LA synthesis, LA, uh, that's linear algorithmic synthesis, not Los Angeles synthesis, mm -hmm. but LA synthesis sounds cool, doesn't it? Um, I was really looking forward to it. And I knew it, it was actually used uh, to good effect by one of my favorite electronica groups, the Future Sound of London. And uh, I was looking, so I plugged it in and uh, like plugged it into the fire interface. And started record like playing through it. I was like, "Oh my god, that sounds so amazing! Why does that sound? It's like all full and powerful and strong and gritty." And th then I realized that the reason that it sounded that good was because I was driving the preamp <laughs> with the limiter on the back. And then I realized, okay, that's why it sounds that good. The the D110 actually doesn't sound that good. It sounds all right. Um, it sounds really good when you're using it in like most Roland stuff, you know, when you play it by itself, it's kind of okay. But when you put it in a mix, that's when they really, the Roland stuff just fills out that space absolutely perfectly. Um, but anyway, the, uh, yeah, in that particular case, it was actually because of the, yeah. the limited preamp on that, that old interface. You know, but, I'm kind of doing a modern version of that right now because I have my Roland gear all hooked up right now. I've got, uh, actually, I have a Phantom. I got a Roland Phantom XR. And along cool. with my my JV and my XV5080. And, uh, right. you know, okay, it sounds good. It's, you know, these are really nice general purpose type of synths that you could do for a lot of things. But the big thing that takes it over the top for me is I'm not plugging it in line in into my audio interface. I'm actually plugging it in to a tube preamp that I am driving oh, wow. like pretty hard so that I'm getting right. some nice tube compression actually happening on wow. that thing before that was, it hits my interface. Yeah. So it's it's a really cool feeling that uh, I totally get you. That must sound amazing. So actually, this is a good segue into um, another thing that I was wanting to chat to you about in today's show. Mm -hmm. So uh, part of the project that we're doing at Moon Mode at the moment, um, I'm envisaging a score of music that is very sort of... Um, early early 16-bit era game soundtrack so you know amiga games or you know early pc games with the sound blaster mm. that kind of thing yeah now on the console side of things at that time and i'm sure you will correct me if i'm wrong here but it was very much fm synthesis you know we had the let's see kind of sort of i mean well i mean it's yeah. basically like the exact same thing you were talking about because like the Amiga and the PC with the Sound Blaster or AdLib was kind of different. You know, Sound Blaster is basically some sample playback with, an, with a Yamaha OPN FM synth. 
And then, right. you know, Amigas, of course, like multi-channel PCM. But then, yeah. you know, 16-bit era in consoles is the exact same thing. Super Nintendo was, you know, eight channels of a four-bit PCM sound in its own sort of weird oh, Nintendo okay. way. But then there was right. the Sega Genesis or the Mega Drive, which was right. FM synth. Yeah, that's the one I'm thinking of because where I grew up, you were either Commodore or you were not. <laughs> and if you were not Commodore, maybe you were Sega, but nobody chatted, no, nobody talked to you if you were Sega. You had to be Commodore. So, <laughs> so it was it was it was pretty brutal, and there was nothing Nintendo. Nintendo was Game and Watch was basically Nintendo, right? Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, nobody that I knew had a, a, a SNES or anything like that. Anyway, I digress. So. Um, Part of that sound, of course, uh, as a segue from before, uh, is LA synthesis mm-hmm. and that that tone of um, you know that like the D fifty uh, and another unsung hero of that era uh, is the Kawaii K one. Oh, Do yeah. you know the K one? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've yeah. never had that, but I I mean, I've been actually we had a K one at school actually so i mean i'm trying to remember if i actually really used it but um oh man but but yeah i am sorry yeah that's all just say yes i am familiar with it yeah so the the um the kawaii k1 uh, for those who don't know uh was again like a sort of a poor man's poor man's d50 so it used the same concept as la uh, synthesis uh, but it was eight bit, yeah. Instead of sixteen bit, right? For the for the um, D fifty and the D one ten. I think the D one ten might be twelve bit, but the the D fifty is definitely sixteen bit. Anyway, um, so the K one uh, is another unsung hero of this approach, and the the way that LA synthesis works, it's very very simple. It's basically a combination of um, wavetable synthesis. So you have a wavetable of a short cycle of an analog waveform, be like a square wave or a, a sawtooth or something like that, often put through filters in the case of uh, the D50. Um, and then also the transient part of the sound would be an 8-bit PCM sample, yeah. very short because there was not much memory. So it's just like a click or a, or a, a bit of noise or, or something like that. And those would be sampled from acoustic instruments. So you would have things like, you know, the pan flute, the, the initial breath of a pan flute or the, the initial kind of attack of a, a bow on a string or a pluck of a guitar or things like that, yeah. or a hammer hitting the, the piano string or something like that, right? So part of that sound, are those sounds, and, and today I've been just playing around with, um, if anybody's uh, interested to try the K1, there is a fantastic free VST version of the K1 called... K1V, and it is a project of a uh, solo developer called Nils Schneider from uh, Germany. So if you go to uh, if you go to the internet and you search for Nils, that's N-I-L-S Schneider, S-C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R, K1V, you'll find uh, links to his WordPress site. It's, it's cool, isn't it? A WordPress site with a big PayPal donate button on it. And it's a free VST3 version, and it's very, very authentic. So in doing this, he didn't just multi-sample a K1 or anything like that. 
he actually dumped all of the raw waveforms out of the chip of the original device and recreated it piece by piece in software. So it's extremely authentic and it sounds awful in the best way. <laughs> oh man, I'm, I'm looking at the site right now you know, and I'm like, on one hand, why the heck would I need this? Because like, I actually have quite a few Korg plugins actually straight from Korg. Like, you know, I've got like- right. Yeah, the, the, the I've got like WaveStation, uh, M1, M1, of course. Yeah, I yeah. mean, M1's the big brother to the K1. Yeah. Um, it's like, why would I do this? But the more I look on this, the more I think, oh, I kind of want to play with this. <laughs> oh, you have to. It's really, really good. And I absolutely love the sounds from that era. Um, and that's why I love, of all of the, like the, the JV1080 is the boss, obviously. And the, sure. the um, MKS, MKS50 is, you know, is the Alpha Juno 2 in Iraq, yeah. which is, you know, it's an analog synth. It's, it's brilliant. The uh, TX81Z is, is a classic as well. Um, uh, but out of all of these four synths that I have, the D110 is this sort of crusty old LA synthesis thing, kind of like the, the K1. Those sounds for me just just hit it. They are absolutely perfect for the kind of music that I like to write. So the K1 is exactly the same, except it's 8-bit, which means it's even more crusty. Um, uh, it, yeah, like I said, it just sounds awful in the most amazing way. Anyway, so what I've been doing today, which I wanted to share with you, I'm quite excited about it actually, is I've been trying to recreate LA synthesis in modern software synthesizers. And it's been really fun. Huh. Vince, you have to try this. It's so much fun. Okay, so if you have a software synthesizer that can, firstly, it needs to be able to layer sounds on top of each other. Mm -hmm. So you need to have, you know, things like, um, uh, let's see, current day synths that can do that, like uh, Kilohertz Phase Plant Serum, um, mm, right. Arturia's Pigments, uh, Synthmaster, um, what are some other ones? Dune. Uh, can do it as well. So if you have this sort of layered synths where you have multiple layers, the other requirement, well, there's two other requirements. You need a bit crusher, of course. I mean, you can have that later down on the chain in the channel if you want, but it's kind of more convenient to have it as inside the one synth so you can just save a preset. Sure. Um, and it needs to be able to play back samples. So all of the ones that I mentioned, they all have a sample engine. The sample engine is intended for use for granular synthesis, but in this case, all you need to do is sample in the attack portion of an acoustic instrument with a very, very short decay. Then to emulate that LA synthesis sound, what you need basically is a wavetable mm -hmm. um, because yeah. you can do it with virtual analog as well for more of a, a juicy tone, but to get more authentic, you just need a, a wavetable of like a, um, uh, a noise segment or something like, because all of these uh, LA synthesis synthesizers they just had these very very short wavetables that were just looped to create the tone yeah, yeah and pulling these things together and then you slap on like a, a bit crusher to reduce the hertz rate and drop it down to like 12 bit or something like or 8 bit or something like that it's so much fun vince you have to try this you know on wow i'm just thinking about like what it would take for me to do that and i'm already sort of uh scaring myself with the uh with the idea, the prospect of like dealing with these loops that are not tens of thousands of samples longs or even thousands of samples long. They're hundreds of samples long for some of these. If you want right. to be authentic uh, right. for that, but it's like, I, I, 
you know, when you were talking about, you know, how LA synthesis works, and you know, I, you know, it is a thing that I think a lot of us try to do in in different ways. I remember sort of messing around with that actually in the Scream Tracker days, mm. because in Scream Tracker, um, it is known as a tracker format, but it actually right. did have the facility for doing FM along with sampled. Uh, not a lot right. of people did that because very few people actually had all the hardware that it could support simultaneously for that. But you could right. actually do that. Um, and I remember playing around with that. You know, okay, if I trigger a sample here and I've got this FM bit here, you know, what does that sound like for this particular note? And then extending that to does that really enhance the quality of this solo or whatnot? Um, right. But um, <laughs> okay, uh, you got me on this. This K1V, this looks cool. I am yeah. going to mess so, with it. And I'm probably, I love the fact that there's actually not just Windows and Mac, but also Linux packages here. So, yeah, I mean, how many plugins give you uh, Linux packages? Uh, but yeah. I'm like, okay, what exactly am I going to do? Am I actually going to go all the way? Uh, I, I think you're a madman. <laughs> the, well, I, I get more mad. Are you ready? Oh, no. Because... Yes, that's right. You, you know what's coming next. So basically, once doing this in like Arteria Pigments, I was using Arteria Pigments to do this. Okay. And, and Arteria Pigments is, is great. And also um, Faceplant is really good for doing this too. But I thought, I need, I need more control. Like I need to, I need to feel like I'm, I'm, I'm really in there. Like at the moment, I'm just sort of going through this Arteria layer. That This is like distancing me from, from the source of this, this incredible LA synthesis power. I need to be closer to it. So. Uh, enter Renoise, and uh, Renoise is you know basically the, the the it's a tour de force tracker. It is yeah. the, the the you know the flagship tracker now. This is tracker you know modernized for the for the uh, for the modern era. Well, uh, the sampler inside Renoise is hugely functional because essentially any tracker is basically a uh, a sequencer attached to a sampler essentially. So mm -hmm. everything and Renoise just happens to allow you to use VSTs, but at its heart is a sampler like any tracker is. Um, the cool thing in Renoise's sampler is you can actually draw your own waveforms, Vince. Uh huh. Vince. Vince. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so you can actually you create a blank sample, very short, and with the mouse you can just draw in your own wavetable. Yep. Loop that. And that's your sustain portion. Pop an envelope on that so that so that it doesn't um, so you can get you know a sound that you need, and then take like you know the initial transient from a, a pan flute or something like that. Layer it on top. Renoise will also uh, it will also allow you to adjust the algorithm that it uses for repitching samples. Hmm. So you put it on the linear mode, which would be like the most raw. You know, old school, <laughs> as yeah. like old school, yeah. Uh, that's one thing that pigments and faceplant can't do. That their repitching is very, you know, modern and high tech and sounds good. You don't want it to sound good. You want it to sound bad. So put it on linear, uh, and yeah, so much fun. You can you feel like you know it's like 1985. You're working in Osaka for Roland, and the bosses <laughs> come to you and say, right, we've got this, we've got this new synth coming out called the D50. It's going to compete with Yamaha DX7 and um, all right, Vince, Vince Sun, I want you to I want you to use these tools to create you know 
the most realistic hybrid acoustic synthesis sounds that anybody's ever heard. You feel like that. It's it's great. I am mad, aren't I? You are mad. I I mean, it is oh. Yes, you are mad, but I am also in awe that you're actually going through with this. That is cool. You are uh you are doing God's work here. <laughs> yeah. So when uh, when this next game drops, whenever that would be, uh, when you listen to the soundtrack, I can t- I can guarantee that nobody is going to be able to tell that. Oh wow! Uh, did that guy actually roll his own LA synthesis style samples to make this music? I think he did. Nobody's going to care, but I'll care. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and uh, now I'll care too. I'm like, what? The- yeah. <laughs> Anyway, that um, definitely check out the K1V if you would like to hear an example, a very, very obvious, blatant example of what is great about sounds from that era. Um, and if you're not convinced when you, when you first play it, you think, wow, that really does sound awful. Try putting it through a very, very thick reverb or a chorus oh, yeah. or a, phase, a phaser or even any one of your uh, you know, fancy pants filter plugins um uh that's or, or drive it as you're doing with your hardware uh that's when these kind of crusty old 8-bit sounds they really really kind of blossom i yeah i totally agree on that you know it is one thing to just sort of like play these synths and then another to be like yes a touch of reverb um a lot of dynamics i think you know some compression i think treats these things really well um yeah and i mean especially especially when you're in the 8-bit domain, you know, <laughs> you you want to have some dynamics in there for both the compressing and the expanding. It's like, okay, it, it right. just having things sit right, but it doesn't just sit right. It actually makes it sound really good if you do it right. Yeah, that's that's one thing that I think is is sort of important to bear keep in the back of your mind if you if you're into like classic synthesizers, especially classic dig- digital synthesizers. I think it's important to keep in mind that when you listen to like you know these classic '80s tracks with um, you know with with the DX7 or the D50 really pushed right up the front, sounding absolutely amazing. Um, it's important to just remember the signal chain that probably those synthesizers went through. You know they would have gone into like a you know an API or a Neve desk or something, slightly driven into the preamp through a Neve EQ or a, you know, an, an API EQ or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, you before know, being captured compre- by like two inch tape or yeah. Oh yeah. You know, and even before that, they would have, they would have gone through some kind of, you know, analog compressor, like an LA2A or a, or a whatever, you know, and, yeah, then, yeah. and then they get, they go onto tape and of course they sound absolutely amazing. And when you, when you buy like a, a real DX7 or a real, any one of these digital synthesizers and you play it, it's, it's good. But it's a digital synthesizer, and it's like, well, you know, it's it it's harsh and it's cold. It won't immediately sound like, you know, like why aren't I getting like, you know, Brian Eno kind of these amazing tones out of this DX7? Well, that's probably because Brian Eno went through all of that kind of fancy analog outboard to put that sound down to tape. It's I think it's important just to remember that. So uh, there you go. If there was ever justification for all of the vintage compressor plugins that I have, then I, I think that's it. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's yeah. It's, cool. uh, it's it's ironic though, isn't it? Like here I am enjoying rolling my own LA synthesis style samples, and if you had said to me back in the nineties 
when I first started, you know, uh, doing music on the Amiga, and we had uh, we had a MT32, and we had a Yamaha SY22, yeah. and it's like, oh, this this just doesn't sound good. You know, it doesn't sound realistic. It needs to sound more realistic than this. Like, why why does it sound so awful? Here we are, you know, uh, thirty years later, kind of try yeah. <laughs> so desperate for that sound that I'm actually hand rolling it myself. Like this is it's ridiculous, isn't it? It's yeah. I, I am I am crazy. It is so good, and and it does point to the fact that it's not just you know that that technique is a cool and legit technique. It didn't suddenly become totally unfeasible. It's 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 still real. You know, I I imagine you mentioned this to someone who perhaps wasn't even living in the in the 80s or 90s and you talk to them oh okay yeah you take this sample for the transient and then you have this for the for the loop and if you combine it in the right way you can create a cool instrument and they would probably understand and actually maybe even like that particular sentiment uh, right. but then there's all the other stuff that goes into it too you know even besides yeah. the hardware that you talk about and the and the signal flow there's the sheer musicality of it because hey it is its right. own instrument too isn't it yeah that's right that's right so yeah wow i think i feel like uh this this show has mostly been me blabbering about crazy things <laughs> oh so man why don't, that's the best yeah why don't let's let's go to some conspicuous consumption so that you, so that you can you can have a chance to talk for a while what what kind of uh what media, games, mo movie, music, what, what have you been uh, consuming recently, Vince? The thing that I caught up on actually in the last week or so uh, is an anime series called Jujutsu Kaisen. <laughs> mm. I, I'm, I don't know if you know about it, but it's kind of like the kind of the, the new hotness uh, right now. <laughs> or, or I guess okay. it was sort of last year. Um, very shonen, hey, you've got you know sorcerers and evil stuff and really brutal and gory and it's a very cool looking show um mm. it does sound pretty cool too uh i'm just but i'm not sure if that's really the reason to check it out there's some interesting story stuff happening and they they tell the story in a pretty interesting way i can understand why mm. uh people are really into it um you know you've got a main character who's cool but you've also got all these other interesting characters and perspectives and they sort of move around quite a bit actually so you're not always in the main character's uh uh viewpoint for a lot cool. of the story even early on but yeah it's it's cool uh besides that i'm not sure if you checked out the last show but basically i have this surround sound system and I've been messing around with a bunch of different games. And most of the time, that means going on to Xbox Game Pass to try these things out. And uh, right. I would say, ironically, I haven't necessarily been doing things that are really stressing or really pushing on the surround aspects of the sound. Um, mm. So something like, for example, The Art of Rally. Right. That is a freaking <laughs> great game, but you know, it's it is from a, a great game. it is from a far perspective, so it doesn't necessarily use the surround sound all that much, but it's right. still actually a really fun game. It looks cool, it's just so inviting and the sound is also yeah. very inviting too. It's just wow, this is cool. It's you feel powerful but also kind of cute as well because of that yeah. the perspective of the sound totally matches with the visual perspective too. 
Absolutely. I, I recently picked up WRC 10 because I'm a big fan of racing games. Mm. Um, and uh, it, it's really good. It's, it strikes a really nice sweet spot in between realism and, you know, arcade fun. Um, but as I'm playing it, I'm always thinking of Art of Rally because Art of Rally is one of those, you know, really simple um, actually, a, a good analogy. Do you remember the skateboarding game Oli Oli? Wait a minute. Am I? Let me make sure that I'm not going crazy. Am I? That was that an arcade game? No, it no. was uh, a uh, what because was that's original? kind of like the it, open world game, right? Uh, it's no, it, it didn't used to be. There's a new version that's coming out. I think this week, um, which is called like I can't remember what it's called, like Oli Oli Two World or something like that. Which is oh being okay. A, yeah, I think it's coming out in the next few days, actually, or maybe it was. Maybe it's yesterday. Anyway, um, yeah, the Art of Rally is sort of like wh- what Oli Oli used to skateboarding games is what Art of Rally used to racing games. You know, it's so it's so streamlined down to the very core essence of what makes these kinds of games fun. So, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's a, it's a real good one. I'm actually looking um, at Oli Oli right now. It's like, okay, this was from 2015, and I think I actually. I know I must have seen it, but I definitely missed playing it, unfortunately. Right. Well, you'll have another chance because this new version that's coming out is reputed to be uh, extremely good. So another thing to check out. Ooh, excellent. Yeah. As for me, I've been uh, playing an oldie but a goodie. So not really an oldie, but it's uh, a few years old now, and that's uh, Outer Wilds. That is a good game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is a very good game. Yeah, I'm not usually one for this kind of game. Uh, it's not usually the kind of thing that I enjoy, but the Chris, my um, beloved colleague at Moon Mode, he said, right, this is, in my opinion, the greatest video game ever made. So you should play it. I'm playing it. And yeah, it's um, uh, obviously <laughs> oh, Chris man. recommends it as the greatest game ever because he likes this kind of thing. It's not usually the kind of thing that I like, but um, uh, it is indeed extremely good. What is the aspect that you don't usually like? Is it the sort of the puzzles and or the looping or the the Yeah, the... it's it's the puzzles. I, I'm just okay. not really I guess I'm not smart enough basically. <laughs> the uh, the I've never really enjoyed games with with a, a strong intellectual component that much. I guess I'm more into sort of quick, fast, fun arcade action um or, or simulators is, the, is really what I like. So mm. yeah, Outer Wilds obviously has a, has a fairly chunky intellectual aspect to it, which uh, which I'm yeah I, I guess I'm just not smart enough. Well, that's that's basically it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean the puzzles are great. I I do really love the the puzzles and the sort of slow reveal of the story through those puzzles. It it, it yeah. is really, I mean, it's it is very elegant and artful in that way it was a really yeah. well-made game i'm not sure i would say the greatest game or my favorite <laughs> game but it's a wonderful game it, it really is um yeah there have actually been a couple other games that remind me a little bit of that that i you remind me that i actually have to get back into so there's another one called um uh obra din which is mm. another sort of puzzle oriented uh, looking back, uh, it doesn't have this time loop thing, but it's the whole thing where you have to see what happened on this ship, the Obra Din, and you have this way to sort of look back through time at the events that actually happened. 
Uh, and it's a right, similar right. sort of puzzle focus that I actually really like. I really like these puzzle games. Um, and you That's just right. remind me that I should actually try doing that as opposed to just playing some of these more fun pick-up-and-play type games to go through a bunch of them with this surround sound system that I'm still testing out. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, ooh, I'm looking at the time because we're at an hour. Ah! That means uh, this was, in fact, a real, true game audio hour. In fact, it was, uh, what is it? I guess this was episode 218 of the game audio hour. Um, and I guess this is where we go into that whole spiel of where you could find us and whatnot. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at game audio hour. Uh, you can also check us out on the web gameaudiohour.com. That points us at the various places where you can hear us, which really isn't a problem because if you're hearing this right now, you know where to hear us. And that's right in your favorite purveyors of podcasts. You can check us out when we update on Twitter. We'll tell you when the next episode is coming out. Usually we keep a fortnightly schedule. If it deviates from that, we'll let you know over there. And uh, what else? Is there anything else? Oh. I don't know if you heard of the background, but my dog just gave this huge sigh as if he's really tired of hearing my voice. <laughs> oh, Copper. Come on, Copper. You know, he's got that, uh, got that body clock telling you, come on, come on, Vince, 60 minutes is up. Hurry up. Yeah, it's about right. Usually this is the time where I have to take him outside in order to do his business and all that, but whatever. Uh, thankfully, this is not a visual medium, so you don't have to deal with that. That was an episode, and until the next time, bye. Nice.